Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. I'm Ron Skelton, your host. Today, I'm here with Reg Zeller. Reg is the founder and CEO of Canecast, a company revolutionizing the foundry industry across the United States. Welcome from, uh, on the show, Reg, man. I thank you for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Ron. I really appreciate it. I was telling you earlier, I like to joke around and say, man, you were born and some stuff happened and you ended up on a show. You know, could you fill in the gap on how you ended up on a mergers <laughs> and acquisitions podcast? Sure. I was... I always joke about this because where I grew up, literally farmers, beer truck drivers, electricians, et cetera. Uh, My dad went to college, pretty much the only one in his side of the family. My mom didn't. No one else until my cousins literally went there. So I walked into uh, the easy way to sell us. I walked into the guidance office and talked to people about what I should go do in my life. They said, well, you like math and you like to solve problems, so you should go to engineering school. Fast forward about uh, 17 years after corporate of going through numerous varieties of engineering marketing, product management, M&A, general management type roles, decided that was really terrible advice. And I hated uh, corporate America and doing that stuff. So uh, ran into a, a bad boss and had done manufacturing really since 2002, pretty much when I graduated. It was in four different Fortune 500 companies, loved manufacturing. And I always make the joke, if I could drop it on my foot and it hurts, then I enjoy those types of businesses. I'm not a software guy by any means. And so just had the the decision one day of, I'm out. I want nothing to do with this. No more PowerPoints, no more uh, fancy suits. I just want to go jump in and make something here locally. And so from there, I ended up with you know, the, the worst thing ever. Didn't know what ETA and all the, the current terms were. Had no idea how to buy a business. Didn't really even know how to spell SBA, much uh, less what it meant. So went out and found a business randomly. First business that I ever, ever actually walked inside of. It was a foundry. Decided to buy that after some due diligence on my part because I had that corporate background in M&A. Kind of understood it. The more I learned it and literally four or five months after I decided, uh, or I walked through it, I bought a business and, and, uh, now five and a half years later or so we've bought six of them total or continuing to roll them up. And our goal is to more or less change the way the small foundry industry is looked at in this country. And once this takes us another probably four or five years to roll up all these coast to coast, um, I, the guy who we hired now business partner, Josh Schultz, we're just going to take exactly what we're doing on here and go roll up another small industry when we're done after this. But it'll be in manufacturing that much, I can tell you. Awesome. So it's interesting. A lot of the guys that, you know, they decide they want to buy a business, um, um, they create, they either have their own funds or they go create a fund. Uh, they, they call themselves search funders. But that, that process usually, on average, takes two years. And one of the, the interesting things that happens in the process, and even I am experiencing this, is you get in this, like, I really want to look at this industry. And you start looking at it, like, I really was on from January until a few weeks ago. I was really into the coffee industry. I was like, I think I'm going to do something to do with coffee. Yeah. And when you start digging into it, there's some international pol- politic issues around coffee. And there's some yeah. there's some 
bad doings inside of the space. And I, was like, <laughs> I just don't know if I want to mess with drama. Right. You know, right. so, you know, but a lot of, that's what happens a lot of times is you get into something thinking, there, you know, it's got good bones. It's a industry you want to be in. And when you start doing due diligence on it and finding things out and learning the industry, you're like, yeah, that's not it. And you end up, <laughs> you know, you end up buying something like a foundry or something because it, it you, you go in and it clicks. So it sounds like you, I don't know if it was luck or, or what you just, you, you, you came across the first one you come across like, Hey, I can make this work. Yeah. Yeah. We, we looked at a lot of different business listings. None of them really stuck out to me again, not a software guy. Didn't really want to do home services. I'd actually worked in, we'd provided electrical goods to the industry. So I knew what an electrician did. I provided thermostats to the industry. So I knew all about the HVAC industry. I love what those guys were doing. Honestly, as I was going through corporate, I always envied them on that side of the table. It was like, I would much rather be sitting in your shoes than in my shoes. I just didn't want to have that because I didn't have that really background and experience. You know, for me, I could utilize my manufacturing background. And mm -hmm. that was the thing. Once I realized if I kind of separate all these pieces out, the, the concept or the, the general people talk about, Porter's five forces or how you look at marketing, you know, you think about customers, you know, this is almost literally the opposite of what everybody would want to get into from search funds or what people would want to get into from private equity, micro private equity. And now we've created a space that private equity or micro private equity doesn't want to touch at all. We're much too large for individuals, but yet, you know, the big private equity guys are like, hey, now we're uh, we're liking what you guys are doing. You want to uh, take some of our money? We'll just pay you. We'll buy what you have and then we'll move it over. And, you know, you guys can just run this for us. Like, <laughs> Five years ago, I probably would have taken you up on that offer. But today we've done the hard work and now, you know, we're we're got a little bit of a gap. But yeah, it went from August to 2016. I saw the business in October of 27 or 2016. So two months later. And we bought it in January 2017. So it went, uh, you know, it went really, really fast. But it was partly stumbled into it. Obviously, there's luck involved in finding that. But, you know, once we saw it, it was six weeks of a really fast deep dive to understand the entire industry and everything I would use or would have done from a strategy business development perspective back in corporate to say, hey, I really like this and I think there can be something here. I didn't think it was going to be a roll up and you know, you'd ask me, am I going to buy 20 of these things and have a hundred million dollar plus company? <laughs> yeah, no way. I mean, but if we want to consider I'm a genius, uh, we can definitely look, uh, his, his, we can change the way history is written. I would say, but that'd be a total lie. That's cool. You know, um, there's, there's something to be said about the private equity model. If you think about it, because, uh, I, like I had Adam coffee, that's why I was looking over here. I look at my big monitor up there, uh, trying yeah. to make sure I didn't butcher the guy's name. Uh, <laughs> Adam wrote two books, private equity playbook and stuff. They, he, he was in the heat and air business and, mm -hmm. um, I think it was five or six acquisitions. So he, he started it. He was a CEO of it. He got acquired by private equity. They bought like 80% of the company left him with 20 at yeah. 20% became worth more than the 80 over time. Cause they kept <laughs> acquiring and growing and right. they did this five times. And by the time they sold it the fifth time, it sold for over a billion dollars. Yeah, right? So if you can imagine crazy. like, like that, you know, you own 20% of this, 20% of that. And at the end you own, you know, some percentage, I don't know if it's still 20, but right. uh, of a billion dollar exit. Um, and, and, and you've done that five or six times in, in smaller scales. So there's something right. to be said about it. Now, the trick is, do you work well for others? Right. That's because you, you, a lot of people like, not, not so they, well. 
Right, right. So a lot of people think it's sexy because they get a big, you know, big check right now, but they don't realize they just also got a boss. Right? Yeah. I, and after 17 years in corporate, I've had plenty of bosses. Um, I'm good with uh, not having to go back to having a boss. <laughs> Whatever it is, we'll, we'll go the other side and be the independent as long as we possibly can. Awesome. Now you've got six of them now. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, well, four locations, but yeah, we're in Minneapolis, Kansas City, Cincinnati, and New Hampshire. And so what we typically do is we'll go find, I mean, the easy way, geographically find an area uh, where our customers are based, determine who the best foundry might be in that area, and then buy what we call our beachhead. And then we'll do, you know, one, two, three little roll-ups around there and tuck everything in, kind of a classic model there it's not a hub and spoke it's really more of a coe model so we might have you know one of our facilities will specialize eventually in doing high volume parts another one will specialize in really large parts another one will specialize in really complex parts whatever it might be and so that allows us there'll be some overlap in each one of them but what that allows us to do then is invest where you'd never see those capabilities inside of a small foundry right i mean these are two, three, five million dollar a year type places, you just can't go invest a million and a half or two million dollars. And the biggest thing, this is why I talk to people now, they I, I <laughs> I'm told all the time, you have to stop talking about what you do. And I was like, well, I've been talking about it for long enough and I understand the industry. If anyone wants to go buy these shops, that'll be great because they're one key person away from going bankrupt. And that's the big difference for us and them. I mean, you can't go, you're doing 4 million a year in sales. You can't go buy a $2 million piece of equipment like we can. And at the same time, you have to then hire white collar workers. You have to hire, you know, blue collar workers that know that. And, you know, you go buy from a big foundry, they know one tiny slice. And for our guys, what we need in a small foundry, they need to know the entire. So you don't have to have that depth. You need to have the outside vendors or whomever or at our holding company level, have that expertise. You just can't afford to do it on, you know, the individual piece, which is kind of where we are that nobody else is, you know, and we're continuing to grow and our purpose will be to stay small in each one of these. So that's really our niche and where we're going to to play. And like I told you, the, the search funder, this is literally what not to buy 101. High <laughs> <laughs> CapEx, uh, you know, you need a lot of money to grow, you know, it's key man risk. Again, it's like every bad thing imaginable. And again, uh, thankfully, I didn't know that or else I probably wouldn't have done this. And, you know, also, I'm a little stubborn. Someone tells me the stove is hot. I probably still need to touch it anyway to verify. So <laughs> I, wouldn't, I, probably wouldn't have listened, probably wouldn't have listened anyway. So it really wouldn't have mattered. So for those that may not know, I mean, you and I had a previous discussion and I learned a lot about what foundries do and stuff. Can you give us a I don't know, a 60 second, two minute spiel of what a foundry is and, and, yeah. and what, what you guys, what you guys do, what you make. It's, it's really simple and it's been around for quite literally about 6,000 years. Uh, you know, once we got fire and the ability to find metals that they could melt, more or less you create, depending on what it is, a negative impression of whatever part you want to build. Sometimes that can be sand. Sometimes that can be other metal. And in our case, we have aluminum. So we'll just literally heat up aluminum to 1400 degrees, more or less make it liquid, pour that you know, molten metal into some sort of a negative impression form, let it cool, which is called freezing technically. But once that hardens, break away or pull apart the other pieces of that. And what you have left is now that actual part. And that's literally all we do. And so 
for us, we make parts for other people for the most part. We have a one small business that is will eventually going to grow substantially, but different story altogether. That is how we, you know, someone comes to us, whether it be on a cocktail napkin or you know, it can be everywhere from literally some guy had an idea in a ball one night with his buddy and they want to make a product, which that's almost our largest customer right now, insanely enough, to the far end of you know the biggest engineering companies in the world, the Siemens, the GEs, the Honeywells, et cetera. They want to come and say, hey, I have this part that fits in this widget. Can you build it for us? And we'll kind of do everything in between. So how do you see things like uh, 3D printing affecting what you're doing now? So there's two different, well, let's say there's three different elements of 3D printing that impact what we do. The first is you think the classic and what most people think of as plastic, right? Depending on the typical, we can actually utilize plastic today inside of some of the technologies we have and make prototype parts. So without getting into too many details, you can literally print a plastic part and you can make a, a form around that out of sand. You pull that plastic part out of the middle we can actually make a prototype part within, you know, days for customers. You know, that used to take weeks or months. So we can utilize that. You know, it's not production quality, uh, you know, but it's 95%. It'll get you most of the way there. The second 3D printing is you actually print with sand. So rather than what I just mentioned, you, know, you could put a form around it and you form something. This printer, instead of putting down plastic, will actually print your negative impression of your part, but with sand all the way around it. And you pour the molten metal in there, just like a different code called green sand technology that we have, and you'll get a production level part. The third, which I think most people would then think of that know the industry and they wonder, is this going to bankrupt us per se, or at least ruin it, would be actually direct metal printing. And for what we do, relatively simple geometry parts and they're not looking at real complex i mean obviously not with aluminum it's not a complex alloy to begin with so we are 10 15 20 plus years away from when we would actually utilize any of that type of technology so we are integrating we already have the 3d printed plastic we've used we don't have one in-house but we'll use third-party vendors as needed we just don't have a lot of customers that have value in this with the 3d printed sand and the 3d metal we're paying attention to it and ultimately for us it doesn't really change other than instead of us having workers and furnaces and automatic molding machines you know we'll just have rows of 3d metal printing our customers won't want to go out and buy those things at scale it, it won't make sense and you know once they get to that point you're looking at the one-off you know, MRO, something breaks in, in the middle of the jungle, you know, when you're doing a drill or you know, I came from that world at GE where we were really doing a lot of that with aircraft engines. And, you know, there's elements of that, again, where you have that real complex geometry where saving ounces or pounds saves you millions of dollars a year, different animal, uh, not, not the type of parts that we deal with in my type of facility. So we're monitoring it, but I don't think, I think it'll be after my career before it's something that will take a material impact from a, a direct metal printing. That's cool. So I heard you say a couple of times aluminum. Um, is are you guys making mostly aluminum parts? So you guys actually blend alloys and kind of create different metal yeah. so products? Uh, so we're technically non-ferrous. We do have some brass brown zinc in our shops, depending on, but we're mainly aluminum. Uh, part of the reason why 
I like buying aluminum shops over others is the, his, the history of bronze, as most people know, would be leaded bronze. And so if you have a shop that is from the 40s or whenever it was started, because a lot of these are 1940 shops, right? You know, grandpa came home from the war. Um, the kids eventually took it over. And now either they're ready to retire in their 60s and 70s or, you know, the third generation, you know, either doesn't want to do with it or never had it or wants to get out of it already. And so, you know, most of these places, if they started a, a bronze foundry in 1944, the chances of us eventually finding lead somewhere is a real high probability. And I don't deal with stuff when there's environmental issues. So finding aluminum shops and expanding them into other non-fairs, because now there's obviously a lot of non-leaded bronze you can use, would be something we'd be interested in. But buying direct, just it's a mass limiter to what we have. We bought one shop that has it, and admittedly, we got kind of lucky there that they hadn't. It, it was a shop that was moved in there. It hadn't been there forever, and that's why we, uh, we were able to get it done. But yeah, typically, typically going to be aluminum, but we'll do other stuff. It's just so, it's so similar. The only difference is really it's, it's three times heavier and it's a thousand degrees more to melt beyond that bronze and aluminum aren't really all that different beyond. And I won't get into the metallurgical aspects of the alloy. <laughs> we just, we just buy it off the shelf and melt it. We, we use pretty common alloys that are readily available. We don't alloy anything ourselves. We don't do exotic metals. You know, generally speaking, if, if there's a part where, you know, a, if it fails that a car is going to crash or a plane is going to fall out of the sky or something similar, we don't do those types of parts. We don't want the insurance and, you know, there's a lot of ways to make money. I don't need that on my conscience that somehow we would have messed that up and, you know, 200 people die in a plane crash. I'm, I'm totally fine without having to worry about that in my life. Well, that's cool. So uh, what's the coolest thing you guys make? What, if you could decide or, or strangest, uh, like, what would be something that you guys? We make all, oh, yeah, we make all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, the the two that people love to hear about the most, yeah, three. So one, anybody that is a kid, obviously, or when they were a kid in a playground, there's a giant spring. You go to you go. There's a big horse with a giant spring on the bottom. You rock back and forth. We're essentially the only domestic manufacturer of those horses anymore. Real <laughs> interesting aside is um, we had a. Uh, one of our customers came to us. They had an outside vendor. And so for Pride Fest, um, they put four giant unicorns to the point where may, you know adult-sized humans can ride these things. And so they made these uh, giant black unicorns with dual. Instead of a single spring, now there's two springs at the bottom. And there's a bunch of people. That's now a, a thing. Every time my buddies, anybody goes to New York City, goes past rock center and it's inevitable that I'm going to get a picture of somebody riding one of the unicorns we made. But yeah, other things for any of the golfers in the audience, um, you know, we make a lot of the golf ball washers. So if you're familiar with that, we make deer stands, you kind of name it uh, so far across the spectrum, but typically it's either the, it's either the ball washers or, uh, or some sort of a playground equipment that everybody likes to talk about. And as soon as people saw that everybody, we used to make the horse and everybody would want a horse. Well, now these unicorns, Corns are two or three times larger and now all my friends see it my niece want one and all my friends kids <laughs> want one and like hey like i don't have the capacity to get the ones that i need to right now much less uh start building these things on the side so anyway yeah. the, the, the only the only person that's getting pulled getting rank on this is my wife she thinks she wants one so maybe we're gonna have to let her have one but uh we'll see it'll, it'll be a that's while a 
I'm glad I asked. I was curious what would the answer would be, but uh, I, I was I would have never in a million years decided a, a, an adult sized rideable unicorn would be there. Yeah, <laughs> I, I'm telling you, I don't know what it is. Everybody see these things. They're they're the and it's an interesting. I love the company, the, the customer that we have. Won't use their name for their uh, benefit, but they hand paint everything. So they'll give giant custom playgrounds and you know we're able to deliver very fast so they're able to deliver playgrounds very fast but they'll come in and they'll literally still have like all those you can get the general like generic painted ones but then there's other people that want custom painted they literally have an artist they can paint these things so this one is it's all black it's got a big gold chain it's got the spike or the the fancy uh horn and then a rainbow tail so this is uh it is a big uh big draw for a lot of folks they really love it Hey, Mario, but, uh, when we edit this and make it live, I want you to uh, find a picture of that and put it in, in here. I want to I I see it. So, we'll, uh, we'll absolutely find one for you. Mario's my production uh, rock star. So we'll have, to, we'll have yeah, to find a photo of that thing, put it in. Yeah, I love it. I, I love, you know, I asked an off the wall question at the last one I did, and, and that was the funnest part of the podcast. So, yeah. you know, usually my podcasts are just business, business, business. So I've yeah. been getting into what's the coolest thing you've done. So let's, let's talk about your strategy. Uh, you're, you're, it looks like you've been doing like one to two a year. So uh, yep. or is that your kind of your path? You're going to stick at that or. Yeah, right now, <laughs> without getting into too many details, we're uh, we're in the middle of negotiations or about to be for something that is, I wouldn't say it's outside of what we do, but it's something that pushes the boundaries of what we do. And so that one might be where we'd take down one in a year just because the size and complexity and there'd be a lot of other pieces around it. But generally speaking, we're now at the place where we're negotiating with uh, a few different bankers talking about traditional financing. And so that's obviously a game changer. When someone, you know, up until now, we started with an SBA, as we were continuing on, it became, uh, we self-financed a few of them. More or less, it was like, cut us a check for the real estate and the asset, you know, 80% of that, and we'll cover the rest in, uh, in cash. The last few deals got really interesting because they were as without saying anything it, they're an impaired asset everybody else looking at it never would have been able to run them because you'd have gone bankrupt your first year or two simply because they needed a ton of work and money poured into them but those are the kind we like because you think right now i mean we're, we have a few folks that have already talked to us kind of in that seven to ten exit type multiple mm -hmm. but you know we're able to buy these things for one two times maybe um and so yeah. we take those we can go raise we can go increase because of our production systems and the people that we have and our know-how we can a lot of times go increase profitability by 5x and so you can do the math uh you figure out you buy any asset for 1x uh your multiple is 10 and you increase profits by five it's pretty simple math to do. So right now we're a little bit going off of that. And if you kind of think about for us, it will be in that two to three per year. It'll probably ramp up to four or five. I mentioned Josh Schultz earlier. He came on and is just an absolute rock star operator. I am just absolutely shitty as an operator, comparably speaking. I can do it, but hate it. He, uh, he can do it and he's awesome and he loves it. Uh, so that's a good thing for him when he pushes through this 
you know, he's able to create systems and processes now where we can just drop this on top of it. And within a two, three months, we can have practically a, a foundry that the owners wouldn't even recognize anymore. And so that will be our strategy as we continue on. You know, we may go a little bit uh, off uh, kilter here. I don't, I'm trying to justify in my head whether this is something that it's worth doing. But, you know, beyond that, once we get it, we'll go back on to that. You know, you'll buy at least one, if not two, of these beachheads a year. And then, you know, another one, two tuck-ins. You won't do the same ones. You know, we wouldn't buy a beachhead and then buy immediate, immediately buy a tuck-in and stick it inside. It would be, you know, we'd buy a tuck-in for a different one that we bought last year, let's say, and then we'll buy a new beachhead and get those up and running and then kind of go that through. But, you know, ultimately it's 10-ish locations across the U.S. And like I mentioned, we've done six mm -hmm. of these. We'll have to do another 10 to 15. But, you know, by the end of that, it's in excess of a hundred million in sales. So, so it's an interesting business and it can't be replicated, which is why I keep talking about it because like I said, it'd be a fun nightmare for everybody else. I wouldn't, there's a lot, let's put it this way. We love it. There's a lot easier ways to make money in the world. There's a lot better businesses to buy. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend people getting into this. But. I used to say that about real estate all the time. It's a tough way to make an easy living. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's, uh, people look at it now. They're like, Oh, I, I want to do what you do. How do I get in? I was like, well, again, it's uh, for the first five years or four and a half years, it absolutely sucked. Uh, and now, you know, we're an overnight success five years in the making or whatever they call it, even though we're not even close to being successful or, you know, not even near where we need to be. We're just feels like we're in like the second or third inning of this thing. Awesome. So you mentioned something earlier uh, in your uh, previous statement and talking about buying these, it's talking about the the real estate and and the acquisition cost. Mm -hmm. Do a lot of the uh, facilities you buy own their real estate? I personally, I really want it. I'm a little, and I get this every time I talk about this. If I put this out on Twitter, if I talk to anybody, and I always joke like the finance bros, like the guys that run everything on Excel, are going to jump down my throat. I'll have thirty DMs about how dumb I am. I shouldn't be buying the real estate. It's not a good cash on cash return. All this stuff, and I I totally understand where you're coming from. I get it. Whatever. But for us personally, our ability to control our own destiny, especially with foundries, really helps us. It's a hard business to get permitted to be able to run, etc. And I don't want someone to be able to determine oh hey once we get this all built out we have everything there either to say well now you're the only person that we're going to have in there we're going to obviously take over your rent control or the other side of this which is someone's like yeah, i'd rather build a hotel here <laughs> i'd rather have a you know we, we joke about this i went and tried to buy a large facility in the northeast up in new england because they said oh yeah we bought this out we have an industrial park we really want to find people. And I was like, this is perfect. I'd like to buy like 40 or I'd like to get like 40 or 50,000 square feet. And they asked what I did. And they're like, ah, yeah, we weren't thinking that kind of industrial. We were more thinking uh, kind of like coffee roasters and breweries. I was like, <laughs> okay, that's, that's right. not the world of us. So anyway, once we get there, yeah, as long as there's not real estate, the, sorry, the, there's not some sort of environmental issue with real estate, I really want to buy it. Wow. So for us, once we get into it, that's great. And then ultimately, this is what I tell a lot of other people that are doing this. If you're not being held back by the way you're being financed or you're not being held back by your cash, and I would understand if people are, this is a way to diversify what your investments are. And certainly, if you fast forward five years, seven years, 10 years, whatever, you know we've already talked about the only exit that we would have right now is a big strategic buyer or a private equity firm. 
Well, neither one of those two are going to want our real estate. So if you think about that, real estate's paid for, let's say it's 300,000, 500,000, whatever square feet of $5 per square foot triple net lease. That doesn't suck either. That, that feels like for the rest of time, I'll take that annuity and not be too upset about how that works. And that thing will kick off cash. Or, I mean, again, you can resell the real estate as well at that point in time. So as long as we have the funding to go put money down on the real estate, it kind of is a no-brainer for us to uh, to go buy that. Um, partly diversification, partly long-term annuity. But at the same time, it doesn't it's not hurting us. Right. You know, I, I could I could see the argument. This is where I get it. Like we don't we don't want to go do infinite things. We are very, very focused. Josh and I talk about this all the time. We'll eventually go do a lot of things. But first we're going to go build this thing out and we're gonna be the best at what this is. And we're gonna have blinders on until we get there. And then once that's all taken care of and you're kicking off, you know, eight figures a year in uh in free cash flow. That, that makes a lot of things a lot easier to go figure out how to fund and right. finance. You just need to you just need to stay focused. I've just seen too many people that you know, go build fiefdoms or go be distracted by the shiny object. And I am I'm a major sufferer from shiny object syndrome. So it's uh it's a lot of focus for me to not <laughs> go chase down every random thing that looks like a good business to buy. So let's talk about your long-term strategy, right? Is this a buy and hold? Do you guys plan on exiting in 5, 10, 15 years? Uh, do you know right now or you're just playing? You know? I mean, if, I, if you were to ask me right now, I don't think we're going to sell. There's two reasons for that. One, it's kind of illustrated. Overly simplistically, once you find something that's kicking off cash flow, I love the idea of going to do something with it. And if you've built all the systems around it, obviously this thing is going to be in an exceptionally complex holding company structure anyway. So we're protected. It's not like one thing can happen and we can lose it all. Um, there's a lot of reasons why then, you know, I hear horror stories from so many people. Of They went, they had a great business. They loved what they built. And then they spent, after they sold it, the, you know, the next 30 years of their life going to chase essentially what they already had. And so is it going to be life-changing money? I don't know. I don't spend the money that we make now, really. So I don't, I don't know what I do with it. I, I love, you know, I, I, I worked in corporate. I could have stayed there and retired and been, you know, perfectly fine monetarily, but I was miserable from a, a personal and, you know, kind of career standpoint. And I've created the exact job I wanted. Now it, it took a few years to get here. And I've told Josh this many times, it was always a two, three steps forward, uh, three, four steps back, uh, one step, uh, who knows? It was always one of those things. And now it's, you know, we're finally getting to the point where, I was able to bring Josh on and he loves being the operator. I get to be the one that just goes to buy businesses. Really? That's the job that I love. I love the strategy. I love what this is. So, you know, for us, it's, he's going to go build all these systems, like I mentioned, and we'll go find the next industry to roll up after we're done with this would be my best guess. And we'll just use the cash flow out of that to go figure out the next thing. And I think beyond that, my wife and I don't have kids. I tell everybody this. So, you know, ultimately my team that builds this is going to inherit this. So, you know, ultimately before this is all said and done, this isn't going to be my decision. You know, I'm, I'm assuming this will end up in a trust or, you know, something I don't even control, <laughs> hopefully long before I'm gone. Um, but, you know, I, I really want to see something where the assets are protected. And if there's excess cash, if there's excess profits, you know, the, the families can have that. But we've created something that fundamentally has changed you know, first the small foundry industry in this country. And then the next thing is going to be, 
you know, the next industry. And I, I just, I have keep saying this. I fundamentally believe in small local manufacturing. I think it, there's a spot for it everywhere. That's not a knock on China or Mexico or anything else. I just think that there's reasons to have it in each of these places. And so I think we'll be able to continue to do this. And, you know, I always joke about this. It, it, it goes from, I don't know whether it's a legacy first or a dent in the universe second. Uh, some of my buddies argue about this back and forth, but I want to fundamentally change how this thing works in this country. So I don't, I don't see selling. It helps that to be perfectly honest. I love it. And I love that the vision is, you know, at some point the employees own it, right. Or the, you know, the team that helped yeah. you built it owns it. So, you know, that could look like an ESOP. It could just look like a, a trust that owns and manages it. And the, you know, the employees have their jobs. There's all kinds of different ways, I guess you could yeah. uh, structure something like that. But uh, it's great to have that vision because to be honest, there's two different ways of running it to be you know, like blatantly honest. If you were running this to sell it in five years, you, there's a lot of things you should be doing that would be different than, Hey, I'm just trying right. to run this thing, grow it and yeah. not pay the tax man as much as, you know, as much. <laughs> so if you see me fidgeting a bunch, my back is pitching a fit. So yeah, no <laughs> I'm all moving myself around a lot. Cause for some reason my lower back is killing me. Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. But yeah, to your point, I mean, there's specifically that. That's one of the things that we talk about because of the way we think through this. This is what Josh and I talk about. This is the year of, we call it kind of the year of the process, the year of fixing stuff. And he's relatively new still. He hasn't even been here a full year. But I told him, I'm not worried about making money this year, next year. I'm not worried about optimizing any of that. I want to do all the things right now so that in 15 years, 20 years, whatever, this company is bulletproof. We've done all the things. We put the money in now. Why, why wait three, four, five years to go install a piece of equipment that we could be utilizing now? Sure, maybe it makes it a little more difficult today, but it makes us that much better three, four, five years. I'm not, I, I tend to be relatively risk averse anyway, but I understand it enough to believe that we're making smart bets. You know, granted, we still need to see the return on investment and all the rest of that. Don't get me wrong, but yeah, there is some risk mitigation elements to that. And there are also some things that make us more of that one of one. And the more things we put in there, you know, I'll give you some examples. And we're talking about doing like a lights out level foundry, which is unheard of in small foundries. It, it's literally like you'd never see it. Well, first of all, you couldn't afford it. No one would even give you the money for it. But we're talking about like, how do we figure that out? Uh, you know, I want one in three, four, five years. What does that mean? Okay, that means that we need to have someone who really understands robotics and automation and all that. Okay, well, keep backing that up. What does that mean? It means we need to hire a CTO probably now or within the next six to 12 months. And next week, we're literally talking with a guy who would be one of the best CTO candidates imaginable. He has the cybersec background. He understands robotics. He's done a lot of these packaging and yeah, it's going to be a little different in a foundry. These people don't really exist in foundries today. So, you know, we'd be willing to spend the money today and have that person walk through right from the very beginning with us such that, you know, five years or 10 years from now, we're the only people that are able to do this. And I'm willing to make that, you know, I don't care if we sell it in three, four, five years, as long as we don't bankrupt the company. Right. Uh, you know, I don't need, I'm taking out the IRS mandated minimum amount of the company today anyway. That's all I've ever taken out pretty much to pay the taxes. So it's ever again going back in. Cause like I said, this is about the job I love. And I, I couldn't say that more. It's, it's a, let's, let's go do that. It, tax optimization or any of that. I'm like, yeah, okay, well let's make sure we don't run out of cash. That's it. Uh, right, right. <laughs> we're ready. We're, let's be on that. Let's go build something really cool. What is your like kind of without, I know there's some industry 
specific type of things, but what is your selection criteria? Are they, they need to, like, I know you said that you're kind of branching out geographically. Uh, yeah. Is there a size, like they need to have, they need to be seven figures. They need to be, yeah. you know, so many employees or, you know, what's, what is Yeah. I mean, for us, we just search? really need, I mean, overly simplistic, what we want to do, big customers don't care. They don't, they don't care where in the country we build. They just want to make sure they have a quality product delivered on time. That's it. The rest of it, whatever. They actually like the fact that we have multiple facilities because that's risk mitigation. You know, if one facility burns down or something breaks or whatever, we can pick up their pattern, ship it to another of our foundries and still be making product the next day. And so that big customers are fine. Small customers, this is kind of why we have, why we're geographically dispersed. You grow bigger, you grow bigger and bigger and bigger, you chase bigger and bigger work. And so the reason why we're buying these things that we can cash flow relatively quickly is that we're not seeming, or we don't have to have the problem with the chasing the bigger work. We can still stay small. So when these small customers, you know, they want to get up in the morning, get their kids to school, drive up, shake a can, see their product being poured, go have lunch and a beer and be back in time for dinner. And in order to do you need to be within roughly four hours of somebody, you know, more or less. Right. So every, every 500 miles, you think about 200, 250 miles kind of as your four hour type timeline. Um, you know, we just have giant 500 mile concentric circles all over the country. We just have them. We look anytime in a big geographic or a big population area that we know where this industry is located. We go find the best foundry in those areas. We know them in every single one. We've already contacted and talked with all those different places. So, you know, if someone was like, Hey, here's a $50 million, I can go execute this as fast as Josh could integrate them. <laughs> he would kill me right now, but that's a different story. But yeah, so from a standpoint of then how we look beyond that, there is the first time I did this, I tell this story because this is a, in my mind, this is a fundamental difference between roll-ups and holding companies. For us, you give me five. I if I know what your real estate is, you give me five numbers and call it 15 minutes, I'll tell you how much that foundry will make under us. I'll tell you how much we'll be willing to pay for you if we're willing to pay for you. That's it. In, I mean, granted, you have to obviously go through the diligence and verify. But in reality, what an existing foundry does means almost nothing to us. It's really, does it have the bones? Does it have whatever we're going to need? Because like I said before, we know how we're going to eventually need to lay it out. We know what we're going to need for a size. We know what the building needs to be. We know, you know what the area needs to be. Everything about that, we've dialed that in. Because we've bought so many of these things and quite candidly, because the third one I bought was a giant mess and I screwed up so many things, it's made me a far superior buyer to really understand what I did wrong and what I need to look for and how I can't make that same mistake again. And so you know, this is why when we ever we paint, like, it, it is such a strict criteria for what we look for. And anything that's outside that criteria, I will spend weeks, months, whatever, understanding, can I make that something that's inside of our criteria uh, or, you know, it's really simple. Is it, yep, this is right down the middle. This is exactly what we want. We're going to go buy this. This isn't going to be really much of a question. So it's, you know, we have our own criteria, obviously, that's industry. It wouldn't really matter to talk about it on the podcast, but we, we kind of know exactly. And people are kind of shocked to know. They're like, so it takes you longer to literally get through security than it does for you to figure out once you land in that area, whether you could buy that foundry. I'm like, yep, pretty much. That's, <laughs> that's where we are at this point in time. That's cool. You know, the, um, is there just anything that's like an absolute red flag? Like, like, um, you know, 
environmental. Like, I just environmental. That's, like if, if you got yeah, lead in the facility, if you've used lead in the past, if you have that. anything, whatever it might be. Yeah. I mean, and there's a lot of issues. I mean, there's part of that, right? I, I just, I want a, a joke. I want to be a founderman. I don't want to be doing site cleanups. I don't need that headache. And partly because the cost, the first people that we bought it from, it's a long story. It wasn't even a foundry they owned. It was a business that they inherited through a family. They had a million dollar environmental cleanup and it distracted them for 18 to 24 months, almost bankrupt of the company. I mean, you name it, all these problems. And that's absolutely not what I want. Like, And so that's the only true red flag, like without even a question. The other one would be is, can we not make the real estate make what we want? And this is why I keep coming back. This is the, this is one of my biggest learnings is we know specifically the way a building needs to be. And I'm talking like shape, height, layout, configure, like all this stuff. And if it doesn't meet that, or I can't build it to meet that, we just can't do it. I mean, we can do it as a tuck-in, but we can't have that as a beachhead. So, you know, I don't, again, if I'm just buying it and moving it. I, I don't care. The other thing, I mean, generally speaking, cultures are really hard to figure out. There are some times, like if we talk to a foundry owner that cuts corners, you know, the guy that takes cash under the table, does weird stuff like that. Or, you know, the employees, they're kind of, they're saying one thing, they're not doing the other. They're like, oh, I'm not really worried about, like, if there's any type of that impropriety, it's just not worth it for us. I mean, other than maybe right. at best to buy it. Because again, it, people are like, oh, well, yeah, you could move that in. I'm like, well, I don't know. if you. I, I don't know if those customers are any better <laughs> what the the foundry is right i don't i don't want to buy those types of folks in my life so it's really i've learned that's I've not learned that done. yeah i've learned that customers re, uh, at least in my experience the customer base is fairly related to the behavior of the company right Agreed. so you know any customer like there was a there was an uh, ag uh architectural firm in Texas, I was looking at, and uh, in my due diligence, I figured out that the guys that run it managed by screaming and yelling and kicking trash cans. I've talked <laughs> about this a lot on the show. I don't know how to manage yeah. that way, yeah. and I don't know yeah. how to hire somebody to manage that way because I've never done it, and I don't approve of it. And right. um, so the culture just turned me off, and I just wasn't interested. And then I started looking at some of the customers, and their customers are accustomed to have to scream and yell and make things happen. Yeah. Right? Because yep. who would who else would tolerate being around that all the time? And so you know, I, I, there's you attract kind of how you run, and 100%. so I can see where if you've got a culture problem, you probably you know, you, you know, I just, I just I'm, you know, you hear all, uh, acquisition entrepreneurs like just I'll, I'll acquire it just for their customer base. Yeah, like, yeah, you, you got to be careful because if it's if it's really bad company and and um, you know if you think about it, if a company's got really bad reviews and that they're just uh, poor service and customer service, the customers are hanging around for that. Are either, yep. you know, bottom scrapers just wanting for the cheapest price and don't care, or there's something else going on there. So uh, it's at least if you're going to do your due diligence on buying a, custom, a company just for the customer base, probably better do the uh, due diligence on the customer base and make sure they're ones you want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's always funny when people hear we, we had one of our one of our biggest customers. We actually fired within the first 18 months. And probably a little less than that, actually, more like 12, 13 months of the the business we bought the first one, just because he would come in and his idea of getting things is he would yell and scream at my employees. And, you know, he had a guy that he normally worked with and that's how they went back and forth in the company. And that employee was no longer there. And that guy came in and started yelling at our people. And I was just like, Hey, but guess what? 
we're not building your current parts. We're not building anything, as a matter of fact. Like, you can come and get whatever you have, whatever we have, and, but you can go find yourself another place because I'm not... I warned you once, and this is it. I didn't leave corporate to deal with assholes. Like, I, I dealt with plenty there. I'm not coming to do it here. And you know what? Happily, I had to put up with that in corporate. I don't have to put up with it here because it's my money. So as long as I can pay the bank, here, gift wrap you and send you to a different uh, supplier. I'm not interested <laughs> I'm extremely direct and often get accused of being an asshole. So uh, somebody says, hey, uh, so-and-so told me to call you, but they told me, they warned me a little bit. You could be a little bit uh, like, and I just say an asshole. I was like, uh, did he tell you any of my other flaws? I was like, yeah. Well, you know, and they're like, no, that's all he said. And I was like, well, he's kind of blindsided and he doesn't know all the other flaws. And, you know, I joke around about it, but I also joke around like I have an asshole quota, right? Yeah. One per, one percent, one per, per acquisition. And, and unfortunately, <laughs> I sit in that seat. Uh, so... Um, I just don't go with it either, but yeah. uh, I, I, I'm not. I'm about the nicest guy on the planet, but I just say what's on my mind. I tell you what I'm thinking. A lot of people just can't can't consume that very well. Yeah, right? that's that's totally acceptable. I, I can deal with that. That that I'm not worried about. It's I've told more the yelling and screaming. It's the threats. It's the you you would any reason. I don't mean just a threat like physically, but you're like an employee. Oh, they threatened to quit over money. I'm like, there's the door. Like, I don't care. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's not. No one's bigger than the company, and you're ruining culture, and you will not hold my company hostage at the end of a gun. It just isn't going to happen. So get the hell out of my place. I mean, it's just been a fundamental. I'll give you one chance, pretty much. Like, okay, everybody has a bad day. Something happens. But if it happens twice, nope. Bye-bye. So, But then, you know, that's part of it. I think everybody that's buying a business needs to clearly understand that you can't have key man risk. It's such an important. You just can't buy a business and then let one person be as important or more important than the business it just you, you can't let that happen just from a risk management standpoint you can't do it but you can't yeah, that's no, the, the gotta solve that the i refer to them as poison pills right they just they they take yeah. everything around them right yeah I, I had a contractor that was working on with a group of people and uh he called me up and said hey you gotta let all these guys go they're idiots i was like no 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 <laughs> and he says, well, you haven't liked me from day one. I was like, no, I, I take you to coffee. I take your fish. And the problem is you're the idiot. And uh, I need to get off my job site. Right. And, I, and I'm just really direct. And so I was yeah. like, you need to get off my job site. Come get, you know, come get your final check. Well, I thought we were friends. I've known you for 10 years. I was like, we are friends. I'll take you fishing and stuff. You just won't work on any of my job sites anymore. Right. You treat, you treat people horribly. You do your, your work is half what you, you told me your, your half the capabilities you told me you could do. And uh, you know, I just, I'm done with it. So yeah, you know, you gotta be, you, you know, I, I joke around like, you know, I, you know, I have an asshole quote of one and it's me, but it's just because you gotta be direct in business, right? There's, there's yeah. just, you know, I honestly believe there's no such thing as a bad employee. Uh, just some people should be, you know, be better employees flipping burgers for McDonald's than they are for me. <laughs> right. Um, right. They can make money somewhere. Just not in yeah. my place. Yeah. <laughs> Man, yeah, you'd, be, you'd, be, you'd be great at something. It's just not a, not a whatever you're doing here, bud. And yeah. uh, it, it, it sounds cold. It sounds harsh, whatever. But it's just the nature of business. Um, and a lot of times, I, you know, if I know what they're good at, I'll actually hook them up. I'll say, hey, I got a guy over here that I think he would be a great, you know, you know, you, you nitpick everything. I think he'd be great at QA. I think you should go over here and be, you know, do, do Q, uh, quality assurance. And uh, I think that would be your forte. Uh, yeah. But that's, you know, you're not helping me out any here. Right. So uh, anyway, uh, we're actually at the top of the hour. We have five minutes left, six minutes left at best. So uh, what if you could just leave one big takeaway, like, hey, if you don't, if you don't pick up anything else from our conversation, 
pick up this. What, what would yeah. you say that should be? So help me out with your audience. What is the, what is kind of the, the mix of your audience? I'll try and tailor to that. I would say about 80, 85% of the guys out there listening to the show are acquisition entrepreneurs. Either they're, they're doing what you do. They've already got a few and they're looking for their next acquisition or they're just getting started. They're search funders. They're looking for their first deal and they're out there, you know, analyzing industries and trying to pick that, pick the first one up. So it's, yeah. it's a mix of those guys and the rest of them are PE and advisors and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right, we'll, we'll tailor this to probably the first, I don't know, within a year or two, either you're looking or within a year or two of buying. The number one piece of advice that I could possibly give is that you have to find a peer group. You have to find a group of owners around you. You need to have your core group of people are essentially doing the same thing. So if you're searching, you know, have them be the same thing. They're also searching. You guys can compare notes and talk about it because the day that you take that job, it's the loneliest job in the world and it's the worst job in the world because you grow up in all these companies and, you know, and joke about you and your buddy sitting at the cubicle could make fun of the idiot that was running the place. And that person is gone. That person is you and everything lands there. So as of, uh, as of day one, you need to have that peer group because it won't matter. I've got a great group of guys that I talk with um, on a regular basis and we're at slightly different versions. You know, some people have been in it a little bit longer, some people in a little less, but you know, multiple business owners and it doesn't matter. Like there's guys in there that are plumbers, HVAC guys. There's guys that are almost pure investors. You know, they have like holding companies that buy random businesses, uh, cabinet maker. I mean, kind of everything in between And 80, 90 plus percent of what we talk about is identical, whether it's in a foundry or whether it's in a plumbing company. But that peer group is so important for everybody to have. That'd be the number one piece of advice I give anybody. And then correlated right or what you need with that is that you need to have somebody who is kind of two or three years, maybe five years at most in front of you. And then you need to have somebody that's like 20 years. And it doesn't have to be a lot of people, but if you're brand new, having someone like myself, that's gone through all the ups and downs of five and a half years, I can tell you your first 18 months are going to suck. At some point in time, you're going to be in the fetal position on the bathroom floor on Wednesday at 2 a.m. I know that what because almost every, everybody, <laughs> yeah, like, oh my God, I just burned up, uh, you know, how many millions of dollars on a personal guarantee of my wife and I's money? Because I've been there and almost every one of the guys that I know have been there. And once you know that, that that's not that abnormal, that helps a lot. And then there's the person, you know, that's 20 years out that has seen everything. They may have sold their business or they've gone through that entire process. But having that kind of core group of it doesn't matter, two, three, we've got like a dozen um then there's another CEO. group that's a few years, yeah, everybody owner, CEO type, you know, I think that's the number one thing you have to do. Because if you don't, it's going to be the most miserable experience because no, your friends won't understand, you know, your spouse won't understand, and you, and you can't bring that home. You can't bring that into all your relationships all the time. There's just so much right. stress and pressure, especially the first 18 to 24 months that you need to have other people to talk about that have a frame of reference and get it. And, you know, at the same time, you're not going to ruin all your other relationships in the process when you want to talk about uh, how your working capital is crushing you because your business is growing and accounts receivable. And they'll be like, yeah, cool, man. I was just wanting to talk about the football team this week. <laughs> I get you. you know. So you need a place to get that out. Right, right. So how uh, if myself or the audience could do anything for you, what would it be? Like, what's your what's the one big ask you got out there? Uh, you know, I, I would say generally speaking, you know, if you find a, a diamond in the rough foundry, send them my way, aluminum foundry. But I think I've talked to most of those. So honestly, the biggest thing, you know, beyond saying 
you find some folks sending my way is uh, if there's anything I can do to help. I've had so many people that have helped me over the years. I just want to give back as much as anything. You know, we're at this point where it's not about the money. It's more about the legacy. And, and for me, we got our foot in this space. And I think there's amazing resources. You know, your, your podcast run, the Twitter feeds, the, all the different groups, et cetera. It's incredible, but you know, getting in there and finding somebody, you know, like I mentioned, that two, three, five years in front of you, you know, DMs are always open on Twitter. Hit me up at Reg Zeller. Um, there's a big group of people, and if I can't help, I probably know somebody that can. So I probably need my biggest ask because that's what I really want to do is go help people transition from, you know, if not everybody should be a number one, not everybody should own a business, but if you should, I certainly will do everything I can to help uh, people get across that line. Awesome, man. It's been great having you on the show. We are out of time, so we're going to have to end the show. But uh, hang out appreciate for a few it. seconds afterwards. I do appreciate being here. It's been fun. I learned some stuff. Thank you, sir. Uh, I, you make giant aluminum unicorns I can ride. And I'm a big boy. <laughs> I don't like get on it, but that's still cool. Oh, uh, you can. Believe me. You've seen. Uh, you, 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 you'll be fine. If I ever go to New York, I'll send you a picture with me on your unicorn. I can't right? wait. I uh, really right. love you with that. All right. Thanks, Ron. <laughs> I appreciate it. All right. You have a great day. Thank you, you too. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T I E pm.com and check out the investors and entrepreneurs professional mastermind